0: If you have a Bible, now would be a great time to open it to the book of Romans. Today we are in chapter 7, and we took a couple of weeks to look at two misuses of the law of God. One of those, of course, was legalism, and the other was antinomianism. And now we're going to return back to this passage in Romans regarding the law of God, and it is very instructive, to say the least, about the place of the law in the life of a believer. So we're starting in chapter 7, verse 5, and reading through verse 12. Hear now the word of God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? that the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, The commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this text. Uh, We thank you that it's in the Bible and therefore has much to do with how we live. And we do pray today for the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he works in us that which is well-pleasing to you. We pray that this word today would be used... To accomplish that end of making uh, us as much like Jesus as redeemed sinners can be. And we pray this for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're talking here, and there's certain assumptions that we need to make uh, regarding these verses. And the first assumption is, Paul knows that in this Fledgling church in Rome, there are people who are Gentile proselytes to Judaism. And now Paul has come in with his law free gospel. And they can't make heads or tails of it. It's bothering them. It's stressing them out. Because they had been taught consistently. That the way to become holy. The way to become good. The way to become right with God. Is live in obedience to the Torah. That the Torah is the way of life. And simply by reading the Torah. Understanding the Torah. Applying the commandments of the Torah. To your life. You can arrive at a place where you can be justified, as it were, before God through your obedience. And Paul is having to speak here about a good thing, the law of God. The commandment is good, it's just, it's true, but that can be used in very destructive ways by our enemies. For example, the title of the message is a little bit of a takeoff On Jonathan Edwards sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God my title is the law in the hands of angry sin and because of our sin nature because of the flesh that dwells within us because we are fallen human beings because we're all flawed We cannot have a one-to-one relationship with the law as if all we need to do is tell me what I need to do, I do it, everything's good, because we're a lot more messed up than that. We don't know we're more messed up than that, but the Bible tells us we're a lot more messed up than that. So by way of introduction, let me say that beyond a doubt, Paul's topic in Romans 7, 1 to 14, is the law of God. The word law appears 15 times in 14 verses, and the word commandment appears six times. As Paul meditates on the law, he constantly considers what it can and cannot do. And that's very important for us to understand. It can bind people and hold them captive. It can reveal sin. It can even stimulate sin. And it can label sin. Romans 7 contributes significantly to a Christian doctrine of the law. Above all, because sinful human nature weakens it, the law is more likely to provoke sin than it is to remedy it. As Christians said a while ago, many people's conception of grace is medicine. It's something you take to cure your illness as a sinner. But the apostle clarifies what the law cannot do. Although the law can reveal sin in our lives, it cannot remove it. The law can give us and grant us a knowledge of sin, but it cannot redeem or justify us or reestablish a proper relationship with God. The law is holy, righteous, and good, but it cannot make us holy righteous, and good. By itself, it cannot sanctify us. In our obedience, humans hear a law saying, you shall not, and immediately think, why not? (laughs) What am I missing? Blessedly, God does what the law weakened by the flesh cannot do. God redeems by sending his son in our place to fulfill God's law for us. People... Violate God's law for varied reasons, including ignorance, deception, confusion, and wanton rebellion. But Romans 7 reflects on the culpable law-breaking, which can be mindless or deliberate. Paul is most interested in wanton rebellion. This occurs when we want something that the law forbids, and the prohibition makes us want it more than ever so that we take it, in a very rebellious way. And so that, by way of introduction, is what we need to think about regarding the law. And its limits in terms of what it can accomplish, but in the hands of sin, it does the exact opposite of what one would hope the law would do. And so the main purpose, according to this, is of the law is to show us The nature and character of sin. That is the only way to understand many of these statements. I would have not known what sin is except through the law. Verse 7. But how does it do this? How does the law show us, help us understand uh, sin? And understand what the purpose of the law is. First, the law defines for us sin. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. This means that the very concept of envy or jealousy or coveting is outlined by the law, and without that standard, Paul would not have understood that this is sin. Second, the law reveals sin in us. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. That statement indicates to us that when the commandment of God comes to us, it actually aggravates and stirs up in our hearts showing us not just what sin is in general, but how sin resides within. And so the law in the hands of the power of sin And I would capitalize sin here. Paul almost personifies sin. And the law in the hands of sin is very destructive to us. It condemns us. It has the power of condemnation. It has the power to actually aggravate what we hope is going to cure us. And so Paul is as much saying to his original audience, these proselytes of Judaism, these Torah centered people, that the very thing you're focusing on to bring healing and deliverance and salvation to yourself actually makes you worse in the hands of the sin the law exacerbates, intensifies, increases rebellion. Now that's that's an amazing statement to make. And Paul is making it, and he'll clarify as we go further, exactly what he means by it. So Paul states this idea again in verse 13, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Paul is describing a situation in which he found that the more he tried to avoid coveting and envy, the more coveting and envy he produced, and it grew. In the end, sin in his life got utterly sinful. That is, much worse. Then he could see his sinfulness and his need. Paul's point is the law cannot save us. It cannot deliver us. It cannot redeem us, but it can and must show us that we need to be saved. Unless the law does its work, we won't have any desire for Christ. We will be in denial about the depth and nature of our sin. In other words, we need the law to convict us of our sin before we see our need for having a desire for the grace of God in Christ. So until the law does its work in convincing us and convicting us of sin, we will have no sense of need about coming to Christ. No sense of need for the grace of God. I find it amazing that so many Christians focus on everything but Jesus Christ. I mean, my goodness don't have any by the way, (laughs) but my goodness the purpose of the law is not to construct for you a ladder to reach heaven, but to show you how messed up we are inside. Not just externally here, Paul's getting to the disordered motivations of the heart, he's getting beneath the surface of our lives, he's getting into our thoughts, he's getting into our motives, he's getting into what we love what we desire, what we hope for, what we dream about. And so the law penetrates the surface where so many people like to say, here's what I'm going to say, and I've been thinking about this for a number of days. Us Presbyterians and Reformed people like to objectify everything so much because we don't want to really deal with what's going on in here. And so we like everything objective, everything outside of us. Let me ask you this question. How much do you need Jesus? Do you see how much? Are you growing in your understanding of how desperately you need Jesus? And if you don't know the depths of your sin inside, you will have no motivation or desire for ever finding or looking for or receiving him. He means nothing to you. If you can save yourself by keeping the law, what do you need Jesus for? You don't. But he came because we do. And he accomplished the salvation for us because we need it. And so Paul is beginning to show us what I would call the spirituality of the law here. The law is not just the bare, naked, brute commandment. The law here is spiritual. It shows us our motivations. It deep, deeply deals in the recesses of our heart. Why we do what we do. What we really want. Who we really are. Mask off. bare, <laughs> Naked as it were. Calvin used to talk about the na- naked impact of, of the law upon our souls. But... What we need is the law to convict us of sin before we can see our need or have a desire for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The reason why we're, we're not that excited and amazed by grace is we don't really think we need it. I'm doing okay on my own. Thank you very much, preacher. Get out of my face with all this Jesus stuff and let me live my life. And that is the route to hell. That attitude right there is the route to hell. It is rank and crass rebellion. Paul says in verse 5 that the law arouses our sinful passions. In verses 8 and 9 he says, Sin produced in me covetous desires, for when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. How does sin do this? Or how does the law do this? the basic answer is that there is a perversity about our hearts perversity is a desire for something for no other reason than because it is forbidden told you about my first experience of walking on the grass after seeing a sign saying don't walk on the grass I'd walk by there 500 times but until they put the sign up I never thought about walking on the grass but because somebody put that sign on, well, who, who do they think they are? They can tell me where I can walk. So I walked on the grass. And for a second, it felt pretty good until somebody saw me and said, you're not supposed to be walking on the, okay. I didn't see it. You know, you lie on top of it. <laughs> Anything to justify my behavior and to justify myself and to protect my reputation Pushed against the wall in the power of sin and the law, I will do it every single time. He said, Well, you're a terrible person. I know. I need Jesus. Now, this insight of perversity is there's a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. Oh, I remember I got one thing I got to tell you that happened in high school. I know some of you don't like my stories, but they illustrate the point, okay? That's what I'm trying to do. Is I was on a basketball team, and I grew up in a small town, but we were arrogant in that we could beat everybody in our geographical area playing basketball. We were the super tribe, the super team. And so we go play out this little bitty gym in this hick town, and we just slaughter them. And after the game, we all drank a Coke. And back then, Coca-Cola came in a bottle. There were no cans. So we drank our Cokes, and we were celebrating, and we decided to bust, or burst. Bust sounds better. But burst our glasses in the middle of the street in this hick town. And we had the best time doing that. It was so fun, until the mayor of that little town calls my basketball coach and says, are you aware of what your boys did after the game? So his method of dealing with it was to do this. Girls had gym in the afternoon, and so there were three grades of girls sitting in the bleachers in the gym, and my coach had a boat paddle with holes drilled in it, obviously not for navigating water. And he would take that boat paddle like he was hitting a baseball, and he would make us bend over and grab our ankles, and he hit each one of us, each team member, three times. And I want to tell you, it was fire with every blow. Now, we were tough, so we were going to demonstrate. Now, it was fun because it was forbidden, but when it came home to us, it wasn't that fun because I remember having to walk in front of these girls after being hit three times with the paddle and not show any pain. I don't know if I won an Academy Award, but I tried. <laughs> and some of the guys would jump up and down and scream and holler, and of course it came my time and I tried to walk stiff-legged all the way to the bathroom. The minute I got into the hallway, I just screamed because it hurt so bad. Now, what am I saying? We would have never done that. Except we knew we were forbidden to do it. And it was fun. And that's what the law does. It stirs up rebellion in the hands of sin. Law in the hands of Christ does something exactly opposite. But in the hands of sin, that's what the law does. It foments rebellion. Now, But when we hear the command, our native perversity is stirred up and may take over. This insight is a door to understanding the very anatomy of sin. What it is in its essence. St. Augustine has the classic analysis of this point in his book Confessions. He describes the time in which he stole some pears as a boy. He then extrapolates some profound insights from this experience. In a garden nearby, this is St. Augustine, in a garden nearby to our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit that was desirable, neither in appearance nor in taste. Late one night, a group of very bad youngsters set out to shake down and rob the tree. We took great loads of fruit from it, not for our own eating, but rather to throw to the pigs. And we did this to do what pleased us for the reason it was forbidden. For I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality, nor did I wish to enjoy that thing which I desired to gain, but rather to enjoy the actual theft and the sin itself. Augustine speaking to God, in a perver- perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What therefore did I love in that theft of mine? In what manner did I perversely or viciously imitate my Lord? Did it please me to do with impunity things bearing a shadowy likeness of your omnipotence? Behold, how your servant flees from the Lord and follows after a shadow. Could a thing give pleasure which was done for no other reason but because it was unlawful? And in this classic passage, Augustine argues that there's always a depth motive for every sin. When a person lies or steals or... Is impure or is cruel to someone else. There's always a more superficial motive. There's greed or anger and so on. But Augustine's experience of the pair and his study of Scripture showed him that the underlying ultimate motive of sin is to play God. That's why we do it. It all goes back to the garden. Where Satan promises Eve you shall be as God knowing good and evil you will be the captain of your uh, fate and the master of your soul you will become God yourself and that is the essence of sin playing God and may I add we're not qualified for the job we're not but there's that sense of of desiring, control, omnipotence, power as it were. And so to play God, to imitate his omnipotence, we have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and in charge of our own lives. We want to be sovereign. Now every law God lays down is an infringement against my absolute sovereignty. It reminds us and prevents us From being sovereign to live our lives as we wish. In essence, sin is a force that hates such infringement upon my freedom. It desires to be God. The first temptation came from the serpent saying, you will be as God. That's original sin and it still is the original sin within us all. Therefore, since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, to have our infringement on our sovereignty, then every law will stir sin up in its original force and power. The more we are exposed to the law of God, the more sinful force will be aggravated into reaction. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? His once indicates that he is referring to a past experience. There's been a lot of discussion about the meaning where Paul gets into verse 8 and 9. Who is the I who is alive apart from the law? As uh, one pretty modern commentator said when I started studying Romans 7. He said Romans 7 is like being on a flight and you're just flying along, everything's smooth, you forget you're on a plane, you're just gliding through the air, you're uh, preoccupied with something else, and then all of a sudden you hit turbulence. Now, there are certain things that people do when they get scared on an airplane. I have scars in this right hand from the fingernails of someone I'm very close to when we hit turbulence. And Romans 7 is a turbulent chapter and there's a lot of turbulence in it. But who is this I? Well I'm going to cut to the chase on this one and next week I'll talk a little bit more about who the I is in the rest of Romans 7. But the I here is the Apostle Paul as a Christian looking back on his pre-conversion state. And he is describing, when he said, once I was alive apart from the law, to get a commentary on that, flip over to Philippians 3 really quickly. And this is what he says. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of everything indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith And so Paul, as you see in the early part of that passage, considered himself at once to be alive spiritually, that he was doing well. But something slayed him, something changed him dramatically. He indicates here that he was alive apart from the law. It is impossible that a Jewish boy from a devout family would have been apart from the law in the sense that he didn't know it or try to obey it. There would have been no time in his unconverted life which he would have been unrelated to the law. Almost certainly apart from the law meant that he had not even seen the law's real and essential demands. He had not realized what the law really required. He had observed a plethora of rules, but not the basic force or thrust of the law as a whole. He had no understanding of holiness, of what it meant to love God supremely and in his neighbor as himself, and thus he was apart from the law." What does it mean that he was alive? This is Paul speaking of himself, probably in reference to his own self-perception. He felt he was spiritually alive. He felt he was pleasing God. He felt he was satisfying to God. And he is willing in this perception of being alive was, or he is telling us that this perception of being alive was due to his ignorance of what the law really asked for. But when the commandment came, I die. That means that subsequently something happened to show him that he wasn't pleasing God at all. But he was under condemnation. He, uh, in very graphic language, he says, I realized I was dead. So Paul is saying, in effect, I thought I was doing quite well spiritually. I felt good or better than most. But then I was overwhelmed with a sense of failure and condemnation and what got him. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. The 10th commandment was the one that nailed the apostle. You see, when Paul was a Pharisee and blameless under the law with all of his Jewish credentials, all of that was blocking him from seeing his need for Christ and for coming to Christ. You see, our unfiltered uh, respect for ourselves as being godly can block us, and good can block us from Jesus, can block us from seeing our need. And so the law blocked Paul from seeing who Jesus is and was and how much he needed him. So he said, what caused this change of consciousness? What happened Well, the commandment came, verse 9. It is obvious that God's law had come into the world centuries ago. But Paul could not be talking about the commandment coming into the world in the same way. Instead, he meant that the commandment came home to me. It came home to me. It found its target. It got my attention. It grasped me, and I couldn't deny it. Although Paul had a conscience, the demands of the moral law really hit him hard. In other words, he came under what is often called conviction of sin. Remember, it doesn't mean that Paul had ever said that he never sinned, nor that Paul had never seen the commandment before. Rather, he realized that he was dead, that he was condemned, that he was lost because of the complete failure and inability to keep the law of God. Leon Morris, a British scholar, said in his commentary on Romans, When the commandment came, it killed the forever the proud Pharisee, thanking God that he was not like other men, And sure of his merits before God, it killed off the happy sinner. For it showed him the seriousness, not so much of sin in general, as of his own sin. The coming of the law in that sense always kills off the cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves for what we really are, sinners, we die. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance, and self-justification. So, in this powerful argument, Paul tells us, in summary, to die, in this sense, means that you see yourself as a moral failure, that you are lost, and that you cannot save yourself. All the Pharisees thought of sin only in terms of external actions. They felt as long as you didn't perform evil as an act, you were not guilty of sin. They made it far easier to think of yourself as an obedient, law-abiding person. They lowered the bar, as it were, on the law. And so they externalized the commandments. Apparently, the commandment that killed Paul was the commandment that thou shalt not covet. We know... That all of the Ten Commandments refer not only to behavior, but also to inward situations, attitudes, and motives. For example, Jesus said, you've heard it said you shall not kill, but that means we shouldn't be bitter or hate our neighbor either. However, when you read the Ten Commandments, they are written in Exodus 20, you could easily look at them only in terms of externals or in terms of overt behavior. So you can easily tick them off and feel you are alive spiritually. I grew up in the Bible Belt. It used to be that if you sat any person down in the Bible Belt and said, Are you a Christian? They will say, I hope so. And you will ask them, Well, what do you hope on? Well, I've never killed anybody. Hadn't committed adultery. I don't steal. Uh, and, And they'll go to the external commandments, the fact that they never have done that. But when Paul understood coveting was not just the external act, but the internal motive that drove him. The sin beneath every sin is coveting, which the New Testament equivocates with idolatry. Idolatry is the ground motive for our sins. We reject the real God, and we either ourselves want to be God, or we find a substitute God that we can control to get what we want. And what we want is to be our own God. And so Paul, thinking he was doing well, all of a sudden woke up to a nightmare. You've heard it said, the Sermon on the Mount says over and over, However, when you read the Ten commandments, as they are written in Exodus, you can look at them in terms of externals, in terms of overt behavior. So you could easily tick them off and feel that you're alive spiritually. You could say, I haven't worshipped an idol. I haven't disobeyed my parents. I haven't killed, lied, stolen, committed adultery. I'm doing fine. In other words, you can imagine and interpret the law superficially, seeing it only in a behavioral sense That are not that hard to keep. But the last commandment is the one that cannot be reduced to externals. Thou shalt not covet. Has completely to do with inward attitudes and heart motives. To covet is to be discontent with what God has given you. Coveting includes envy, self-pity, grumbling, murmuring. Coveting is not simply wanting. It is an idolatrous longing for more beauty, more wealth, more approval, more comfort, more control, more popularity than you presently have. Now, it's not wrong to want and aim for such things, but if when you don't achieve them, you are bitter and downcast, it is because your desiring of them has become idolatrous coveting. Now, Paul had never understood sin as a matter of inward longing and idolatrous drives and desires. He had never seen sin as essentially coveting against God, failing to love God enough to be content. He had thought of sin only in terms of violence and violation of rules. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the following, and I tend to agree with him. He says, the real trouble with the unregenerate is they do not know or understand the truth about sin. They have their moral code. They believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And they often sin by wrongdoing, but that is not to understand sin. The moment you understand the true nature and character of sin, you become troubled about your soul, and you seek a Savior of some kind. You seek a Savior. So if anyone is not seeking a Savior, they do not understand the true nature of their sin. It is the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to your mind and conscience. And so one of the great blessings of the law of God, even in the hands of sin, God turns the tables on sin and uses sin's exposure to ourselves of law-breaking, deceiving us making, uh, showing up in our lives as a desire to be our own God. And so Paul speaks to that issue when he says, can the law, is the law of sin? Certainly not. But is the law the route to salvation? Certainly not. But what is the function of the law? To show us the depths and the internal uh, machinations of sin in our soul. The internal dynamics of sin in our soul. So we don't get by on appearances. We don't get by on externals. God sees to the heart. He knows our core. He knows what we love. Who we really love. And what we really want. And so the law of God in the hands of sin exposes us. And one of the great reformational principles that occurred during the Protestant Reformation is that the law drives the sinner to Christ. And that is precisely what the uh, Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. What about you? Do you have a Savior? Has the law done its work to drive you to Christ? Do you rest in him and him only? Are you trusting him? Do you recognize your need for him more every single day? The battle, the warfare with sin, and I will say this more next week, but I'm going to say it today. That's normal Christian living. That's normative. Your sin is being shown to you constantly. Why? To drive you back to Jesus. To find life in him. To return As Luther used to say, to your justification and preach the gospel to yourself again. That is what the law of God does. So come back next week and we'll hear how the story goes on in the process of sanctification. Run to Jesus. He is your only hope. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this text of Scripture. But it's a tough, tough passage to take unless we have seen the reality of our sin. I pray today you'd use this passage to show us how much we need Jesus. And rather than trying to manipulate him to somehow accept us, he accepts us. One of the greatest joys is that God loves repentance. He loves us returning to Him with a knowledge of our sin because He sent Jesus in the world to deal with us so that we could know Him fully and freely. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who have found a Savior, and we love Him, and we give to Him because we love Him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.